following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. It's hot, so let's get to it. Our passage this morning is Titus 3, 3-8, so please turn there. It's also in the liturgy PDF that you may have on your phone. I'm going to read it. These are the words of God. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray together. God, we're thankful for this passage that you have inspired through your servant and apostle Paul. This passage helps us to see some concise truths of the gospel. And as we meditate on these things this morning, pray that we would be uh, exhorted to believe these things more deeply, consider them more deeply, treasure them more deeply, and, and live according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I chose this passage to preach this morning uh, mainly for two reasons. The first is that this passage has a lot of the same themes in it that we've been seeing in Ephesians 1 and 2, as Chris has been preaching through those the last couple of months. And I would say that as part of your Bible reading this week, if you get a chance to open up this passage in Titus 3, and then especially um, all of Ephesians 1 and 2, but especially Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, if you read those together, I think it will help you to see just how similar uh, some of these themes are, and also just continue to meditate more deeply on, uh, on the gospel and just all that Christ has accomplished for us. Second reason I wanted to, to preach this this morning is uh, to use this as an opportunity to uh, encourage us all to look for opportunities to wor- open to open the word of God with, with uh, folks we know around us that do not profess faith in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you have um, one or two go-to passages in your mind that you can easily turn to if you have the opportunity to uh, share the gospel with someone. Passages like this one, like in Titus 3, but also Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, these are wonderful snapshots of the core truths of the gospel. And there's a lot in these verses about the glorious hope of the gospel, and I'm just going to unpack four things. So first one to highlight in verses 4 through 7 is to notice how Jesus is described in this passage. So if you look at verse 4, we have to ask the question, in what sense did the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear? The answer, Jesus. When Jesus entered human history 2,000 years ago, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven, all of that is encapsulated in the idea that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This is amazing to consider. 
Because Paul, is, what he's teaching is that Jesus is the pinnacle of God's revelation about himself regarding his, his, loving, his loving kindness and his good nature. When you think of Jesus, do you think of him as the pinnacle of that revelation of God about his character? I don't often think of him that way actively. And as we grow in our understanding of Jesus, whether we're reading this passage or all the other passages in, in scripture, as we grow in our understanding of just all who he really is, that should help us to grow in, in deepening our affections for him. So in Jesus' perfect life, in his teaching, in his miracles, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his reigning, ongoing kingship, what we're seeing is, is the goodness and loving kindness of God on display. There is a lot of mystery to the incarnation. It's impossible for us, as with our finite human minds, to comprehend all the details of just how the infinite and holy God took on human flesh and, in a sense, bound himself within space and time to walk amidst his fallen creation. But this verse, verse 4, helps us to at least understand part of why the incarnation happened. God saw fit to display his goodness and loving kindness in saving sinners for himself through Jesus Christ. And that's what it means, that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So we, not too long ago, we just spent time thinking through the implications of verse 3 and how it shows that the sin in all of our hearts rightly reserves the wrath of God. But now in verse 4, we're seeing that God in his love and wisdom has also seen it good to show his mercy, grace, goodness, and loving kindness through Jesus Christ, sacrificially standing in our place, removing the wrath of God upon us, and restoring us to a right relationship with God. So this now brings me to the second item I wanted to highlight in verses 4 through 7. Now notice how Paul shows us how salvation is accomplished. In verse 5, we see the phrase, He saved us. Salvation starts with God. The death and resurrection of Jesus are effectual. Through the cross, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we're not merely made savable. No, the work of salvation is actually finished and applied and made permanent to God's people. This has an important implication for how we think about the question of when we're saved. And I'm going to say that there's actually two correct answers to that question. When were you saved? And they're both, they're both correct, and uh, you'll bear with me and you'll see what I mean. So first, first way of thinking about that question, depending on how you grew up, you may be familiar with the idea of sharing your testimony. What that means is typically when a person shares their testimony, they are sharing the story of how they came to believe the gospel for the first time. They are sharing the details of the events and conversations that God used to eventually lead them to belief in the gospel. They're stories of how God brought them, brought a person from unbelief to belief. And these stories are important because they give glory to God, showing how he's worked uniquely in each of our lives to bring us to faith in him. This is a good, right, this is a good and right way to think about how the, how to answer the question of when God saved us. But 
when we think about the question of when we're saved, Paul's teaching here implies that there is another way to think about it, and it all really comes down to vantage point. Since God is outside of time and space, and he sees all things from his eternal and infinite perspective, another way to think about when we are saved is at the moment of Christ's death and resurrection. For Paul, as, as Paul demonstrates in verses 4 and 5, God saved us when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And this is a reference to, as we've gone over already, the person and work of Jesus Christ. To say that there are two correct answers to the question of when we are saved, this is not uh, me trying to be have some kind of acute or clever philosophical trick. This, this reality points to some of the passages that we've already read this morning and the songs we've already sang. It points to the reality of what it means to be united to Christ through faith. Yes, from a human perspective, we experience how God brings us from unbelief to belief, and this is our testimony. But in another sense, the, in the eternal mind of God, we have always been saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus because it is through that act in history and time that God is just to bring us to share in the righteousness of Christ. Our salvation is rooted and grounded in the historical and spiritual reality of what Jesus has done. And since our salvation rests on Jesus we should rightly feel the weight of the permanence of the gospel promise. Jesus saved us, so there isn't anything we can do to lose forgiveness, the, the forgiveness and righteousness that God has offered us through Christ. And since we are united to him, when Jesus died from God's eternal vantage point, it was in that moment that our sin was crucified to him. And when Jesus rose from the dead, from God's eternal vantage point, it was in that moment that we were raised to new life with him. This is the reality of our mysterious and glorious union with Christ. And so as we continue to look at how Paul describes how salvation is accomplished, note further that Paul just emphasizes that salvation happens not by works done by us, but through the mercy shown to us by God through the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, Paul further states that we are justified by his grace. This further underscores what Paul means when he says that God saved us in verse 5. This is hugely important. We don't earn our way to heaven or act good enough to receive the grace of God or anything like that. We only receive the grace of God by God's act of mercy toward us alone. He alone washes us. He alone renews us by his Holy Spirit. He alone gives us a new heart with new affections for him. In light of this, you might be asking yourself, well, what's the role of faith and our trust if it's God who is initiating salvation in his people? The answer to that is our faith and trust in the promises of God, these things are our natural response to the work of God in our hearts. And you may also ask, okay, well, if it's not good works that save us and it's God who, who saves us and then we respond in faith, then what's the point of works? Well, hang on and we'll answer that when we get to verse 8. All right, I will get to our third item to highlight here in verses 4 through 7. And that is, take note of the way Paul talks about the blessings of salvation. 
The words Paul uses about the blessings of salvation convey the idea of lavish, abundant, more than enough, extravagant blessing. In verse 6, we see the Holy Spirit is poured on us richly. The Holy Spirit gives us more than we need. He's washed us clean, and it's not like with, a, with barely enough water. He has washed us thoroughly, doing away with the power of sin entirely. This should comfort us as we think about our standing before God because of the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. We are washed clean through, through the blood of Christ. Our standing before him is secure, and it's not just barely secure. He has thoroughly and abundantly secured us due to the richness with which God has poured his Holy Spirit upon us. Note also in verse 7 that Paul states that we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This too carries with it the promise of, of abundance and permanent blessing in the gospel. Part of the blessing of the gospel is that we are brought into eternal, everlasting, never-ending fellowship with the triune God. And we are heirs to this hope. And the word heirs, of course, is adoption language and inheritance language. God has made a part of his family, God has made a part of his family and given us more than we can imagine. Eternal everlasting life with God is ours through the mercy and grace of God. And the hope he gives us is a certain hope because the gospel is a certain promise rooted in God himself. We can live confidently in Christ because the love and grace of our God is permanently and more than enough secure for us. And then the fourth and final thing to mention in verses 4 through 7 is Paul's strong Trinitarian language. It's not very often in the New Testament that a single passage might so clearly show the involvement of the three persons of the Trinity in God's work of salvation, but that is what we have here. So look at a couple things. First, note that God the Father and Jesus Christ are both called in this passage our Savior. The Father and the Son are both biblically understood to be our Savior. And this, this reality points, of course, to the one being of our triune God. A verse that helps even further make the point is Isaiah 43.11, which states, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. So taking these things together, if there, is no, if, there, if there is one Savior, and if Yahweh is that one Savior, and if Paul is teaching here that the Father and Jesus are both the Savior, then the only conclusion is that the Father and the Son are both Yahweh. Continuing on, we see the Holy Spirit regenerates us as he is poured on us through Jesus Christ. So we see the Holy Spirit's role in salvation as well. The, the mystery of the Trinity is certainly deep, and this one passage, it's not going to be able to answer all of our questions or reveal all the details of just how it is that God can be one being and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what Paul does show here is that there is a beauty and an intentionality of how all three persons in the Trinity work together to bring about salvation. All this now brings us to verse 8, where Paul wraps up 
his summary of the gospel in his letter to Titus. Paul ends with a charge to Titus. The saying is trustworthy. What saying is trustworthy? All the truths that Paul has just summarized in the preceding verses. Paul's confidence in the gospel message is clear. He charges Titus to insist on these things. To insist on the gospel. To insist on the truths that Paul has just summarized. So the charge for us is the same. Like Titus and Paul, we ought to insist on the gospel. We ought to insist on the merciful, saving power of the triune God to rescue rebellious sinners for himself. And church, don't give any ground on these truths. Be confident in these things and graciously and earnestly proclaim them. Titus was a pastor of a new church on the Greek island of, of Crete. And Paul, in this letter, he's doing a lot of things as he writes to Titus, but one of the things he's doing is, insist, is charging Titus to insist on the gospel in his preaching ministry and his shepherding of this fledgling church. So, too, the wisdom of this principle of insisting on the gospel should guide our fellowship with one another. Even Paul draws a clear line of cause and effect. He states that as a church insists on the good news of the gospel, her people, the church's people, will grow in devotion to good works. And this answers the question that we asked not too long ago about our motivation for good works and the role of good works. The grounds of our motivation to do good works, then, is not to earn favor with God in some way or to earn salvific favor, but our good works are founded in the gospel promise that we are assured of through the Holy Spirit. Good works are our thankful and faithful response to God's work of regeneration in our lives. Additionally, this principle of insisting on the gospel is where I drew earlier this morning uh, the charge that I began the sermon today with. And that was the idea that uh, we want to be encouraging one another to open the Bible and read it and study it with those around us who do not know Christ. It's that idea of opening the Bible and insisting on the gospel with those around us. And while, while Paul's charge in, in, this book, in this letter is to insist on the gospel, for, for Titus to insist on the gospel in his preaching and shepherding ministry to his church, this principle of insisting on the gospel, it applies to us in our lives with one another as we insist on these things together and remind each other of the truth of the gospel, but it also applies to us in our efforts in evangelism. So for just as the gospel message is important to the ongoing health of the church, it's also important for us to insist on the gospel with those who do, know, who do not know God around us so that they hear the very same message that has brought salvation to our own souls. One other thing to consider here at the end is the fact that Paul has addressed this whole letter to Titus, who is a local pastor of a local church, that should create an awareness in us that when we're talking about insisting on the gospel, whether we're among other Christians or in evangelism, one of the key things that God is doing is not just saving individuals. He is doing that. He is saving individuals, but he's doing something 
even deeper. He is saving and building his church, uniting his followers together into the church, and he intends for his people to serve him in the midst of a local church, just as Titus served God in his local church in Greece nearly 2,000 years ago. We've gone over almost the entire passage this morning, and we have one more sentence to go. And this will be how we wrap things up. These things are excellent and profitable for people. By, repeat, by repeating the phrase, these things, we know that Paul is again referring to these things that we are to insist on. That is the gospel message, the one that he has just gone over in three verses 3 through 7. And as we wrap up, I just want to briefly consider how it is that the gospel is excellent and profitable. The gospel is excellent. It draws our eyes to our triune God who is worthy of all worship. He is our creator and our savior and our only hope. We worship and honor him with our lives. And we rejoice at the good news of Jesus Christ, dying in our place, raising again, that we might live for him. The gospel is excellent. Secondly, the gospel is profitable. It is a message with a purpose, and God uses it to accomplish much. By the Holy Spirit, he produces in us a new heart and new affections. He uses his gospel to produce his desired result in building his church. He brings each Christian into the life of the local church where we sharpen one another and serve God together. And as Christians, we go about seeking to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world that desperately needs to hear it just as we needed it. So we can say confidently with Paul that the gospel is indeed excellent and profitable. In light of these things, let's encourage one another and we can say to one another, Brother, sister, don't lose heart. The gospel is excellent and profitable, and it is the power of God to save your soul. And likewise, we can say to those around us who are apart from Christ currently, friend, believe the gospel. It is excellent and profitable, and it is the power of God to save your soul. Let's pray together. God, we rejoice in these things and we consider the depths of the gospel. Pray that you would just continue to use passages like these in our lives to cause us to step back and consider the immeasurable grace you've shown us. And as we consider what you've shown to us personally, we consider how you've shown it to this local body here, Cornerstone Bible Church. We also consider how you've shown it to us as a as all Christians throughout all time, the universal church, as you are working to save people, even, in, even before Christ came, we know that there were people trusting in the promise of the coming Messiah. And now that after Christ has come, we, we look back and we say, look, that's what God has done for us. And we rejoice that he has bought us, saved us, and done it through Jesus Christ. And also, of course, then we pray that we would be declaring these things to those around us with confidence and using 
your very word to, to show people your grace and your love. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.